3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and you're here in the studio with me, Priya, and I'm here with Inez and Leela. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Ah, uh, it's... Uh, what a time. It's Everything is happening so much. So much, all the time, and it's hard to sleep. <laughs> it's hard to do a lot of things. Um, but, yeah, building solidarity with the people around you where you don't have to convince them of anything has been really um, helpful, mm. at least for me. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I guess focusing on little things at the moment uh, while holding in our heart and spirit, the larger fight is all you can do. Mm. Um, And, yeah, there's a lot of hopelessness is knocking on the door, but we will not let it in. Exactly. And, like, you know, being – tapping out of the struggle and and being exhausted, that's a – it's a bit of a luxury, but Mm. it it is also important to recognize uh, how we replenish our energy Mm. and, you know – turn towards those sources that that pick us up and keep us going so that we can stay in the struggle, you know. Um, Land back, liberation, end Israeli occupation, um, free Palestine. Uh, So we have a full show for you this week. Um, Leela, do you want to kick off our rundown? Yeah, so I'm going to start off with a question. Have you ever wanted to contribute at a rally, but you're just not sure where to start? Well, today is the day you can learn how to take that first step, people. Marshalling is the perfect way to get involved and support community in the ongoing fight for Palestinian liberation and to end genocide now. Um, This morning, we're going to hear from Bugs, a pro-Palestine activist and artist from Nam, who has marshaled over 12 rallies so far since October 7th. Bugs is going to tell us all about what it takes to be a marshal, how you can get involved, and what to expect at your first marshalling experience. Awesome. And yeah, a vital part of um, keeping the marches going and making sure that there is a a line of safety and protection for the crowd, uh, between the crowd and the cops. Um, So after that, we're going to replay a segment of 3CR's Tuesday Home Time, where Jan discusses the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal, which exposes the four main U.S. weapons manufacturers working hand-in-hand with the U.S. government. So in this segment, Jan is speaking with one of the organizers, Brad Wolf, to unpack taking down the military-industrial complex. Uh, For more information about the tribunal, you can head to merchantsofdeath.org. And remember that Tuesday Home Time airs every Tuesday from 4 to 6 p.m. on 3CR 855 a.m. 
And then we're going to hear from Georgia, the founder of Made in Palestine, which is a non-profit project providing humanitarian and economic support to Palestinian refugees and those living under military occupation or in this time now genocide. Made in Palestine advocates for freedom and justice with a commitment to celebrating Palestinian life and culture and sharing voices of collective hope and resistance. So Georgia lived in West Bank from 2017 to 2020, volunteering in refugee camps as well as human rights organisations and has a background in international humanitarian law and created Made in Palestine in collaboration with Palestinian friends across the West Bank. Yeah, it's amazing. So many wonderful interviews already. And then we have um, Ahmed Bakarat, who is an activist, writer and University of Melbourne PhD student. He's currently involved as one of the organisers in University of Melbourne for Palestine Group and has been involved in Palestinian activism on campus for years, including the BDS or Boycott Divestment Sanctions Motion. Ahmed's here to talk about UniMelb for Palestine and recent solidarity actions on campus. Yes, and as a UniMelb PhD alum, shame, shame on the University of Melbourne. Boo! Boo! And a massive fart noise to Vice Chancellor <laughs> Duncan Maskell. No blood on our degrees. Exactly. Um, so uh, finally, we are going to have a bit of an interesting one. So for the past 68 days, you know, there's been a, a, you know, bar, you know, pretty much a handful of water, food and medicine trucks coming through the Rafa crossing, but even then very limited. Uh, there's been a total and complete centrally imposed blockade of pretty much anything going in or coming out of Gaza, including communications. And it's an intensification of the longstanding Israeli siege of the area amidst over 75 years of colonial occupation. And so... We are going to be joined by Oxfam Australia's Director of Programs, Anthea Spinks, um, to talk about the blockade and the, you know, bombing and isolation of Gaza and how this incessant violence impacts the distribution of material support and humanitarian aid. And also just to discuss what humanitarian aid means in the context of an ongoing colonial occupation. So um, our wonderful uh, co-presenter, Spike, put this interview together uh, for us, but unfortunately he's not able to join us in the studio today. Hope you feel better, Spike, and uh, hopefully we can do justice to the amazing questions you put forward. So um, stay tuned. We'll go to a CSA and come back to you with the headlines. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. These are the news headlines for Thursday, the 14th of December. The United Nations General Assembly have voted overwhelmingly in favour of a ceasefire in Gaza this week. And though the resolution is non-binding, it comes with international pressure for Israel to end its assault on Gaza. But amidst the ceasefire talks, 
Israel's attack in southern Gaza continued to cut Palestinians off from food, medicine and fuel. In a report for the UN World Food Program in Gaza, journalist Hin Kudre says Palestinians are starving, severely dehydrated and suffering in increasingly cold conditions. The Palestinian foreign minister this week made it clear that Israel is deliberately using starvation as a weapon of genocide against 2.3 million population. This week marked the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and in the same week, the UN human rights chief said Gaza is beyond breakdown. Now, Israel's assault on Gaza has so far killed more than 18,000 people and wounded nearly 50,000 with many thousands uncounted under the rubble or beyond the reach of ambulances. Protests over Israel's occupation and genocide continue, including global strikes for work and school this week and successful disruptions at the University of Melbourne, the Melbourne port with the kayak blockade and the ongoing sit in the fada on Parliament steps in Nam. Also in headlines... Hello. Also in headlines... Grassroots collective Unimel for Palestine say they are deeply concerned over attempts to suppress student solidarity with Palestine at university graduation ceremonies this week. The collective said they were disturbed to learn of the racist conflation of anti-Semitism with students wearing kafirs at ceremonies. Graduates wearing kafirs have reportedly not been able to access stage recordings, uh, stage photos and ceremony recordings of their graduations. Censoring of protest actions has also occurred, including for a northern Kanchu, Girame and Badu graduate who held up a sign referring to Melbourne Uni's partnership with weapons manufacturer Lockheed Martin. UniMelt for Palestine said students have a right to represent their cultures and express solidarity when they graduate, and that they will not be intimidated to stop speaking out against the genocide in occupied Palestine. In other news this week... New data shows that First Nations children are 20 times, 29 times more likely than non-Indigenous kids to be locked up in juvenile detention centres. Maggie Munn, National Director of Change the Record, says, quote, First Nations children are incarcerated en masse across Australia due to racial profiling, over-policing and a failure of governments to address the systemic disadvantage, discrimination and racism our people face. As a result, we are seeing trends and tendencies where poverty, racial, economic and health issues are criminalised. End quote. Advocates say governments across Australia have evidence and data on what programs work to support young First Nations people. They just need to invest in them. Also in headlines, foreign investors buying and leaving homes empty in Australia will face higher fees and steeper penalties with the federal government announcing new rules and taxes to address housing affordability. The new rules will see taxes tripled for foreigners buying existing houses in Australia and doubling of fees for those who leave dwellings vacant. Rules to implement the new fees are set to be introduced into Parliament next year and through these changes, the government says, will raise around half a billion dollars. And finally, in headlines for today, as COP28 comes to a close, a deal to transition away from fossil fuels has finally been reached. Despite the urging of more than 130 countries, including small island states, who have been vocal about the weakness of the deal, the agreement does not include an explicit commitment to phase out or even phase down fossil fuels. 
Climate justice advocates derided the inclusion of language placating fossil fuel interests and said the deal falls short on emissions reductions and financing commitments to help the most vulnerable cope with worsening extreme weather. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 14th of December, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. From a private life so public As the tabloids caught your tears Being photographed How sad. How tragic. But it doesn't have to be that way on the Burning Vinyl Alternative Music Program. Burning Vinyl, Fridays, 2 till 4pm on 3CR. And we're back on 3CR. Um, Next up... I'm wondering, have you ever wanted to contribute at a rally, but you're just not sure where to start? Well, next up, you're going to find out how to take that first step. Marshalling is the perfect way to get involved and support community in the ongoing fight for Palestinian liberation and to end genocide now. Next up, we're going to hear from Bugs, a pro-Palestine activist and artist from Nam, who has marshaled over 12 rallies so far since October 7th. Bugs is going to tell us what it takes to be a marshal, how you can get involved, and what to expect at your first marshalling experience. Good morning, Bugs. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us so early. I thought we could start off with a little role play, so I'm going to ask questions as the prospective um, new marshalling volunteer. So first up, I've decided I'd like to support the fight for Palestinian liberation by marshalling at a weekly rally. How do I know if I'm the right person for the job? And what is the first step in getting involved? That's a great question. Um, so the first thing, how do I know if I'm the right person for the job? Essentially, marshalling requires a very focused demeanour and it requires a level of physical fitness. So you've kind of got to be ready to be on your feet for a few hours a day, if you can, um, and if you can do that, then that's probably all you need to have. Um, and the first step for getting involved is rocking up to the rally at 10:30 a.m. Um, on every Sunday. So every Sunday we have training at 10:30, uh, and it's as easy as that. So you come at 10:30. Um, we meet at the building next to RMIT, 
um, across from the State Library and we get going from there. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so <laughs> next up, what does training look like? Because there is some training provided, right? Um, can I attend this training in person or is it online? And do you have any options for folks who come from non-English language backgrounds or from the deaf community? So, yes, we do have training, and training is predominantly in person, but we do have a handbook. Um, the Community Defence Marshalling School has a handbook that allows any marshal to go over um, any martial laws that they need to when they're not on the ground or when they're not with coordinators. Um, our training happens the two hours before every Sunday rally. You can attend the training and then not do the rally as a marshal or you can attend the training and continue there. Um, we do have options for non-English language background. In terms of the deaf community, because of the longevity of the pro-Palestine movement, we are currently working on rally access to the deaf community. Amazing. That's really good to hear. Yeah, it's um, good to know that you can just kind of turn up a few hours early and be ready to volunteer at your first shift. So yeah. now, theoretically, I've finished all my training. I've read the handbook, maybe gone to the in-person training. What does a typical day of marshalling look like? What can I expect and how can I be physically and emotionally prepared for the unexpected? So a day of marshalling um, probably consists of a six-hour session. So once we have done our training, so we do a two-hour training session, uh, we assemble into teams, and each of these teams is responsible for a certain section of the rally. Uh, for example, we have the koala group that lives up the back of the rally, or we have the wombat group that lives up the front. Um, you can expect to see a lot of police. You can expect to make a lot of friends. Um, it's a very community-led project, as everybody is on a volunteer basis. Um, to physically and emotionally prepare... Uh, there, there's a big difference between joining the rally as a, um, as a protester and as a marshal. Uh, marshals don't participate in the rally because we're trying to form a wall between um, any people, any aggressors on the outside of the rally, so anybody who's countering the rally or any forces that may want to mess with the rally. We form a barrier between the protesters and those um, aggressors who protect the protesters and protect their right to protest. So in terms of emotionally preparing, um, you've got to know that you can't have um, that catharsis when you're out there marshalling. So it's always good to make sure that you have some time to process the, uh, the week's bombardment um, before you arrive. And physically, I mean, just make sure those legs are nice and stretched and you've had some fruit, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some really important points there. Key one being that marshals don't actually um, participate in the rally in the sense that you usually would um, if you were just showing up to chant and march. Um, yeah. So next up, maybe this is a good time to go to what the top three practical things that the work of marshals provide at a rally. Could you speak a bit to, yeah, because marshals provide a lot at rallies. It often goes kind of unseen, but if you could list maybe the top three practical things that the work of marshals provides um, for protesters and attendees, yeah, what would they be? So marshals liaise with police um, to ensure that the community is aware 
um, of where the protest is heading, um, if there are any deviations or disruptions planned by the organisers. Uh, marshals are the people who inform the cops and let them know that, hey, this is going to happen today, so please don't, um, please don't, you know, use any kind of force on us. We're, we've got 20,000 people doing this thing um, and we can update them on those plans. Marshals also work closely with MALs or legal observers and they also work closely with medics. Um, so there's an inbuilt community within the rally that go, remains pretty much invisible um, and that, that community is there solely to ensure that if there's any conflict in the rally or if there's any aggressors... Um, entering the rally space to try and cause any trouble, that marshals are the first line of defence. Marshals are the first group that deal with any kind of conflict, that assist if any speakers are um, in any kind of safe or unsafe position. Um, and we make sure that when the rally lands that everybody has arrived. Um, so there's always a community of um, a physical disability that ends up towards the back of the rally. It's our job to ensure that wheelchair users and anybody with crams or families with lots of kids are not left behind and are not left at the mercy of any of aggressors outside the rally. Yeah, extremely important work. Um, that's something that I learned quite recently, actually, how important pacing is and that the marshals are at the back protecting us and maintaining a consistent pace. Yeah, so really important work there. Um now, next up, I'm wondering, what do I need to bring when I'm showing up for my first volunteer shift? Or what should I not bring? Well, for a volunteer um, shift as a, as a marshal for the Sunday protest, you really need to bring um, a, a, a good sense of spirit and focus. Um, there are certain things, just like safety things, like don't wear open-toed shoes. Um, if you've got a scarf or a face mask or sunglasses, make sure you wear them. It is pretty important to um, maintain your own privacy. There are people at, um, in, that sometimes enter these spaces to want to um, gain, uh, gain access to people's identity or, you know, photograph them and document them. So it's always good to bring, like, protective wear. Um Bring a small bag with a water bottle, um, your ID, and there are usually mouths on site that can provide legal observer cards that help you if you need to talk to the police or anything. Most of the stuff that you need, you can get at the rally. All you need is to bring a really good attitude. Yeah, thank you, Bugs. Um, now I know what I'm going to bring for my first marshalling shift. <laughs> now, <laughs> this next question I don't think there is a right or wrong answer, so I'm happy for you to just, you know, speak from um, your understanding, from your experience. This is a big question. It's something I've thought about a lot personally as a brown person. Should I marshal if I've been a target or if I am a target of system, if systemic racism by police? So, you know, what would your message be to black and brown folks, First Nation people, cutie pock people who are thinking about marshalling but are a bit hesitant, maybe having experienced um, violence from the police before, etc. Yeah. That's an awesome question, um, something I've also been considering. Um, as a white person, I know the, the, the privilege that I have in these spaces um, of being able to be a police liaison and 
um, exist and remain fairly unscathed, if I'm honest, um, from any kind of police aggression or abuse, whereas I have witnessed um, and, you know, we have documented police abuse towards, in particular, women of colour who have been marshalling on the lines. I think my best advice is if you have any sense, uh, type of police or um, racial trauma, I would first thing first make sure that I'm okay. Um, check in with myself and say, you know, this is something that I really want to do for the community. Is it something that I have access to this day? Um, and the nature of marshalling is you can leave at any time. Um, there is always a safety net. There is always someone you can say, hey, I'm actually not comfortable anymore. I'm going to go home. You can leave at any point. You can leave right as a policeman comes up to you. You could leave um, as soon as the rally starts or as soon as it finishes or at the start of training. Um, it really is volunteerism. And um, the only true purpose of marshalling is to make sure that everybody on the ground is safe. And that includes any marshal. So, in my opinion, if you want to give it a red hot go, give it a go. But keep in mind that you have the autonomy to leave that space at any time and to preserve your safety um, above all else. Yeah, that's a really great point. Thanks, Bugs, that you can leave at any time and your safety comes first. Um, yeah, so maybe this is also a good time to give a big shout-out to our white allies out there who might be listening. Um, you know, if you have a body that doesn't is not the target of systemic racism, get out there. Help us fight for Palestinian liberation. Join the team. Do some marshalling. You could just do one week, and that would go so far. Um, so <laughs> next up, I wanted to ask you, Bugs, what is your favourite thing about marshalling and can you describe something that you've learnt in your time as a marshal? Oh, um, my favourite thing about marshalling is uh, feeling a sense of pride knowing that I'm helping to keep my community safe um, in the best way that I physically can when um, when there are so many communities that are not safe Um I would love to fly to Gaza right now and um, be able to just send people there. But the reality is that we are so far away um, from this genocide and it can feel really helpless and it can feel very lonely. Um, and marshalling has um, allowed me to meet like-minded people, to develop more community and uh, to feel that I am contributing towards a positive movement in whatever way I can. Um, and probably the most important thing I've learned in my time as a marshal is uh, always film. Always have your phone out. <laughs> yes. If you're, if you're worried, get your phone out. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, never talk to the cops alone. I think that's the other one. <laughs> yeah. That's really great advice. Well, what a nice start to the morning. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Thursday Breakfast today, Bugs. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I'll see you at the rally. I'll see you there. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You just heard from Bugs, a pro-Palestine activist and artist from Nam, who has marshaled over 12 rallies since October 7th. And this morning, Bugs told us what it takes to marshal how exactly you can get involved, and what to expect from your first marshalling experience. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM.
I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.20, almost 7.29 in the morning. Um, and now we are going to listen back to a segment of 3CR's Tuesday Home Time show where host Jan discussed the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal exposing the four main U.S. weapons manufacturers working hand-in-hand with the U.S. government. So in this segment, Jan spoke with one of the organizers, Brad Wolf, to unpack taking down the military-industrial complex. For more information about the tribunal, you can head to merchantsofdeath.org. And remember that Tuesday Home Time airs every Tuesday from 4 to 6 p.m. on 3CR 855 a.m. And you can listen back to their shows at 3cr.org.au forward slash home time dash Tuesday. Brad Wolf is a lawyer former prosecutor, professor and community college dean. He is the co-founder of Peace Action Network of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, an affiliate of Peace Action and a partner of World Beyond War. Brad is a full-time activist for peace and justice and his writings have been published in The Progressive, Common Dreams, Counterpunch, Antiwar.com, Consortium News, and Dappled Things. He recently authored a book on Philip Berrigan's collective writings entitled A Ministry at Risk. Brad is also an organiser with the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal, which began in November. I spoke to Brad at his home in Pennsylvania recently and asked him about that long journey for peace and justice. When did it begin? It's been quite a journey. I'm 60 years old now, and I started off wanting to become a lawyer because I wanted to be a prosecutor uh, in criminal justice, public service. And I thought that was uh, a good route to follow as a way to help serve the public. And Robert Kennedy had been one of my heroes, and he had been a prosecutor, so I followed that track. And I became an assistant district attorney, which in the States is a prosecutor, uh, right outside of Philadelphia here as soon as I got out of law school and spent about four years doing that and realized that public service in the United States is more about self-service than public service. It wasn't so much criminal justice as it was political manipulations, and I was not cut out for that kind of thing. So I left and um, went to work at a community college as a professor teaching courses in law and in literature. I was working with low-income and low-literacy populations and uh, spent much of my time as a professor and then uh, the bulk of it as an administrator, as dean of academic affairs at our community college here in central Pennsylvania. And so throughout that time, I was active in social justice movements and eventually co-founded Peace Action Network of Lancaster, which is an affiliate of Peace Action National. And we've been organizing and partnering with World Beyond War and engaging in various activities here, all based around nonviolent resistance and the abolition of war. And that 
eventually led me to Kathy Kelly and Nick Modern. And through that, I was able to work with them. We came up with this idea of having a people's tribunal where we would hold weapons manufacturers accountable for war crimes. Rather than go after the United States government, we wanted to go after the corporations who are making the money because we believe that profit was driving war in the United States, and we wanted to hold the corporations accountable. Now, these tribunals are mirrored on earlier ones, is that right? They are. So the Bertrand Russell Tribunal of 66 was certainly an inspiration, and then the World Tribunal on Iraq of 2005, and then more recently the uh, Tribunal on U.S. Imperialism. Uh, There's been a People's Tribunal on Police Abuse here in the United States. So it is a, a people's tribunal is a great way to reclaim justice when your government and the courts are not responding to illegal actions. Have those previous tribunals come to any good conclusions that maybe the authorities or somebody else has actually taken up? Well, the Russell Tribunal and the others came to excellent conclusions with outstanding evidence. And so they served as educational documents to a large degree, educating the public. And they're a great resource to go to. And they then provided their recommendations to certain national and international bodies to take up legal actions. The closest we've come is that uh, French weapons manufacturers are currently being sued by an international human rights organization for war crimes and crimes against humanity because the French are providing weapons to the Saudis in the war against the Yemenis. So we would hope that we might be able to do the same, which is take our evidence and our recommendations and provide it to international bodies, human rights organizations, who then might take this up in places where you could sue a a weapons manufacturer, a United States weapons manufacturer that might have a facility in another country. And you're targeting the four biggest in the United States? Well, three of the biggest. What we wanted to do was capture the different aspects of warfare, so conventional warfare, nuclear warfare, and drone warfare, which is a particular concern of ours. So uh, with Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and Raytheon, we have all aspects of conventional warfare and all aspects of nuclear warfare, since all three are heavily involved, and they are among the three largest in the world. The fourth defendant is General Atomics, and that is a privately held corporation by the Blue Brothers, and they are uh, one of the world's leading drone makers. So we wanted to bring a drone maker in as one of the four to really highlight drone warfare. What's been the work to this day to bring it to this area? How long has it taken, and how many people have been involved? So February will be two years since the inception. We've been working with a steering committee of people, which includes uh, attorneys who are well-versed in international law, folks like Richard Falk, Bill Quigley, Marjorie Cohen, uh, also with war veterans and war research analysts to help guide us. And then within that steering committee, we've had a working committee of just three people, which is myself, Nick Modern, and Kathy Kelly. And the three of us have done the day-to-day organizing and preparing. We've been very uh, fortunate to have college student interns and volunteers work with us to help us on the research over the past year. 
they've responded wonderfully. We were really happy that uh, college students were interested in this, willing to give up their time and help us with the research. What stage are you at now? So right now, the tribunal has launched. On November 12th, it launched its opening session. That went live. We had uh, almost 1,800 people registered for that, which was uh, a wonderful audience across the globe. And the format of the tribunal is that we created the evidence to be delivered in the form of documentaries, video documentaries, that has images, movies, videos with voice narration providing the, uh, the evidence. And that is mailed out every week via email to everybody who registered and all the people who registered are encouraged to then share that link with others. So that process will take four months. And about in February, we will have the jurors of the tribunal come together and render a verdict on the evidence. Are that you, will be live streamed. Are you taking them on one by one or are they all putting them all together? We're putting them all together because they all work with each other. It's very incestuous. So Lockheed Martin may be the prime contractor on one fighter aircraft, and Raytheon and Boeing will be subcontractors on that same aircraft providing parts. And then on the next weapon system, Raytheon will be the prime, and say the others will be subcontractors. So they're all integrally involved here, and we didn't want to split them apart. So they're all captured in the war crimes and crimes against humanity. And we're focusing on specific areas of the globe where they've done this. So Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Yemen, Somalia, Sudan, the occupied territories of Palestine. These are the areas that we're concentrating on where they have used their products to kill innocents and to do so knowingly. And these are the areas where the United States government decided that they were going to take over these countries or destroy them in this century. Correct. These are countries that were identified by the United States military for military action in wars of choice, and they went in under cover of either terrorism, defending freedom or democracy, but in reality, most of the times they were going in for to capture the markets, Typically, it was oil. In the case of Syria and Iraq, it's to capture the oil fields there. And that is what's so often happening. We're discovering in Somalia right now that there are offshore oil fields that the United States has now returned to Somalia because there's great interest in those oil fields. So the U.S. military is acting as a corporate police force for fossil fuel companies to extract resources from these, these countries. I did read the other day that they're also after oil fields off the coast of Gaza. They are. And Israel has been described as one big floating United States battleship designed to protect and get oil out of the Middle Middle East for us. What are you learning through this process? I'm, I'm quite sure you knew a lot, but I'm sure, quite sure that there are things that you mightn't have known, but you know now. Well, I've learned how the uh, corporations work hand in glove with the United States military to create needless wars and cause a lot of death and suffering. I did not know the extent of that military-industrial complex until this tribunal. 
Uh, I also was able to learn what it's like to try, and I emphasize the word try, to view this through the eyes of the victims. And that was a goal of ours, was to try to tell this story through the eyes of the victims of these wars. So we've tried to interview victims themselves. We've tried to find stories of the victims and really understand what it's like to be on the receiving end of the United States war machine. And can you tell some of the stories they've told? They're heartbreaking stories of men, women, and children who are villagers, farmers, uh, trying to create a living uh, and have a family only to have it destroyed. They see their family destroyed. They see their country fragmented and uh, exploited by the United States. They see the United States military forces coming in, not obeying any kind of rules of law or rules of war, but taking what they want and committing war crimes uh, as needed. So when you see these these women, children, these men who've, who've lost loved ones and they're being interviewed, you recognize that they are exactly like you, your siblings, your neighbor, anybody else who lives right close to you. They're just looking for a livelihood, a family, some security and safety that we in America too often take for granted, but which comes at the expense of causing a lot of wars around the world. Wondering if you've also interviewed health professionals and journalists who also seem to be a major target in these wars now. We did. We interviewed Dr. Aisha Juman, who's an epidemiologist from Yemen, and she was able to go into detail as to what the war in Yemen has done to the population there. And not just war casualties, but the secondary casualties of these wars. For instance, what happens when the water and sanitation systems go out, when the food chain breaks down, when the transportation system breaks down? What happens to the people in terms of their health? So that was important for us to highlight as well. And in terms of uh, journalists, we were able to interview uh, Matt Akins and Jeffrey Stern. We were able to interview Norman Solomon and others who were able to tell us what it's like as a journalist in these war zones. They were there. They were, they were in these areas and to see the conflicts from that perspective. So um, have enormous respect for these individuals, whether they be doctors or whether they be journalists who are on the ground in these areas. Uh, that was something Kathy Kelly really brought to the tribunal because she, too, has been on the ground in both Afghanistan and Iraq during these bombardments and, and knows what it's like. And that's an experience that I don't think you can really get your arms around unless you are actually there. What a fascinating conversation and I think a reminder as well of the insidiousness of the military-industrial complex. I know there was a bit of a focus on the United States there, but there are so many, um, you know, contracts and uh, partnerships with Australian government and institutions from the federal government to the Victorian state government to institutions like universities, RMIT University, La Trobe, uh, the University of Melbourne, uh, who has the largest partnership with Lockheed, the largest uh, center for Lockheed Martin outside of the United States. Um, so 
There, you just heard a segment of 3CR's Tuesday Hometime Program where Jan was discussing the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal, exposing the four main U.S. weapons manufacturers working hand-in-hand with the U.S. government and speaking with Brad Wolf to unpack taking down the military-industrial complex. Again, for more information about the tribunal, you can head to merchantsofdeath.org. And once again, remember that Tuesday Hometime is on air on 3CR 855 a.m. every Tuesday from 4 to 6 p.m., And you can listen back to their past shows at 3cr.org.au forward slash hometime dash Tuesday. I sat in the interrogation room wanting answers. You see, that's what I did. I grilled authors for the whys and wherefores. Every Thursday, 1130, it was the same. 3CR, published or not. Who were the characters involved? What were they like? And how did the whole damn plot unfold? So stay tuned as Jan, David, and Lisa apply the pressure once more to yet another author. Salam behamegi. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in. Made in Palestine is a non-profit project providing humanitarian and economic support to Palestinian refugees and those living under Israeli occupation. Made in Palestine advocates for freedom and justice with a commitment to celebrating Palestinian life and culture and sharing voices of collective hope and resistance. This morning, we're joined by founder, Georgia, who lived in the West Bank from 2017 to 2020, volunteering in refugee camps as well as human rights organisations. Georgia has a background in international law and created Made in Palestine in collaboration with Palestinian friends across the West Bank. Good morning, Georgia. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, hello. Thank you for having me. Hi, thanks for being up bright and early. So I thought we could start um, by maybe just you introducing yourself a little bit more and telling us about the work that you do for Made in Palestine. Yeah, so um, I'm Georgia. Um, I lived in the West Bank for several years, um, from 2017 to 2020, and I created Made in Palestine in collaboration with my Palestinian friends when I was there. Um, We were having a lot of talks about how can we continue to support and advocate for Palestine when myself and other volunteers would leave, and how do we create, like, a global community to provide real, tangible support to the lives of Palestinians. Um, So that's basically how I've run everything ever since. Everything is run very much with my Palestinian friends still, um, and I'll be back in West Bank very soon to continue the project there. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, so you spoke to a little bit about how it was conceived. Can you speak a bit more to the relationships that birthed this project and, yeah, maybe a bit about what some of those conversations were? Yeah, so when I was in the West Bank, um, I was volunteering in refugee camps for most of the time, but also with human rights organisations. 
um, such as ALHUC and EAPPI. And one of the biggest things was we were getting overwhelmed constantly with all the information and all the darkness of this occupation and genocide that spanned for 75 years now. Um, and it was really hard to see how we could provide tangible help that wasn't being right there in the West Bank. Um, so over the years, I was having these conversations with my Palestinian friends um, all across the West Bank, so Bethlehem, Ramallah, Hebron, East Jerusalem, and really trying to pinpoint how can we continue to provide this support and make sure that people around the world are hearing about what's happening in Palestine. Um, right now, people are, which is incredible, but I definitely wasn't the case when I was there. They really felt like their message was not leaving the West Bank, mm -hmm. and that's what Made in Palestine really aimed to do, was to continue to educate and advocate and build that community. Yeah, um, it's always really motivating to hear the work that's actually been going on for so long. As we know, yeah. the occupation has lasted 75 years now. Um, so, yeah, there's been a lot of ongoing work. And thank you for all your labor. I can really understand the urgency of, um, yeah, how the project came about. So yeah. next, I was wondering, how does Made in Palestine actually manifest? It sounds like it has a few different moving parts. Um, yeah, so how does it kind of manifest when it does reach the public or audiences? And what is your mission? Yeah, so our values are education, advocacy and community. So everything that we do kind of comes down to those key values. Um, we run micro-level projects within the West Bank and internationally. So right now I'm in Australia and we're running projects here. Um, but when I'm in the West Bank, we're running projects there, such as volunteering in the refugee camp um, and working alongside Palestinian families to, yeah, amplify their message and what they want the world to hear. Um, so right now, while I'm in Australia, we're hosting advocacy and um, solidarity events, educational events, basically to educate on this genocide that's been standing for 75 years um, and raising funds for Palestinian families, small businesses, emergency humanitarian aid. Um, those are what our projects here kind of look like. Uh, but overall, micro-level projects. Um, really aimed at helping individuals rather than big corporations and always, always run in collaboration with my Palestinian friends. They're part of absolutely everything to um, yeah, to see what they are wanting the world to hear and what would actually help them. Yeah, amazing. Can you tell me more about your upcoming event, If the Olive Trees Knew? Yeah, so it's a advocacy and solidarity event um, hosted in Melbourne, Nam, um, by Native Palestine, but also with West Base, which is in Collingwood Yards. Uh, it is a solidarity event specifically for our Palestinian friends, First Nations and Jewish, um, and highlighting that parallel in the shared fight for freedom and justice, which is very much being talked about right now. 
and needs to continue to be talked about. Um, so we're going to use that event to share music and poetry and spoken word and active community discussion, ways that people can kind of relate and emotionally connect to these stories and to these Palestinian voices and continue to share their calls to action. So it'll be a really beautiful event at West Base um, and, yet yeah, focused on that solidarity piece the month. Yeah, I understand that this event is also co-facilitated by a trauma-informed art psychotherapist, Matilda Brown. I was wondering if you could speak to the importance of trauma-informed facilitation, especially when you're holding space for First Nations folk, Palestinian folk, and people that have had a lot of generational trauma. Um, Yes, so Matilda Brown uh, is a wonderful trauma-informed art psychotherapist that will be facilitating on the day. Uh, most of all, to hold space for all the lived experience in the room, like you said. Uh, everyone there will have their own experiences of trauma and just holding space for all of that to create a safe space where people feel comfortable to share. Uh, it's also, I think, very necessary right now when we're speaking specifically about Palestine, because it is the most documented genocide in history, especially on social media, Um, which means it's wonderful because we can access all the education we need at any time of day, but it also means that we're accessing graphic images and videos. Um, And a facilitator in this space really helps with regulating our nervous systems and... Uh, how we're all feeling that collective grief, whether we're connected to Palestine by blood, land and lineage, or just by our humanity, we're all feeling it to some level. Yeah, thank you for those words. That's incredibly important. Um, My next question is a bit about, I guess, the longevity of the work, the work that a lot of us are doing at the moment. I wanted to ask, what helps you hold hope and continue the fight for Palestinian liberation. And you can talk about practical things that you do in your daily life or more mm-hmm. about a conceptual uh, approach to, yeah, continuing on. Yeah, well, I think whenever I think of hope and Palestinian liberation, I think of my Palestinian friends in the West Bank. I think of all the stories they told me over those years and the stories they continue to tell me now. I talk to them um, all the time and hearing about what they're going through right now. Really what we're seeing online is not even grasping the complexity of the situation, um, not the complexity, the severity of the situation. Mm. So the... Continuing the fight for Palestinian liberation feels like the least most of us can do. Um, Personally, I cannot sit in silence, and I don't think most people can right now. And it's been incredible on the hope side to be going to protest in Australia. Um, I've been taking videos and showing my Palestinian friends, uh, sending it to them in the West Bank, and... They cannot believe that, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people across Mm. the world in Australia are protesting for them every single Sunday. And that really keeps keeps us going with that fight. Yeah. 
I think it just goes to show that acts of solidarity en masse are incredibly important and we need to keep showing up every single week to those marches and those rallies, keep listening and keep, yeah, showing the Palestinian people that are in Gaza and West Bank at the moment that we care and we're holding them in our hearts. Yeah, they they can feel it and that's the most rewarding thing and... Like I said, it's the least we can do, I'd say. Yeah. So that brings me to my next question. How can listeners support the work of Made in Palestine? Um, so you can follow us on Instagram if you want to see any updates on what we're doing. Um, also, our website has all our information there. Um For our education and advocacy work, we share a lot of educational articles that are specifically written from the lens of international humanitarian law and fact-based so that that information and education can get spread globally, and it has been, which is incredible, um, so that we can document this genocide that continues. So engage with that educational, um, educational content and share it and come to our events. We're hosting some in... Uh, Australia um, over the next few months while I'm here. Yes, thank you so much, Georgia. And we will make sure to link all of those things you've mentioned. We will link the next event that's coming up in February, If the Olive Trees Knew. Thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been really great to have you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye. We just heard from Georgia, the founder of Made in Palestine, which is a non-profit project providing humanitarian and economic support to Palestinian refugees and those living under occupation. Made in Palestine advocates for freedom and justice and shares voices of collective hope and resistance from the Palestinian people. And today, Georgia spoke to us about the next event for the project made in Palestine, If the Olive Trees Knew, which is coming up in February. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. And now we have a very special in-studio interview with Ahmed Bakarat, who is an activist, writer and University of Melbourne PhD student. He's currently involved as one of the organisers in the University of Melbourne for Palestine group and has been involved with Palestinian activism on campus for years, including the BDS motion. 
Ahmed is here to talk about Unimel for Palestine and recent solidarity actions on campus. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning. Thank you for coming in on a bright sunny day. Is it bright? I don't know what it's like <laughs> outside. <laughs> uh, but yeah, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about you and specifically who Lockheed Martin are and why Unimel for Palestine is advocating for the end to this partnership? Of course. I'd like to begin first, of course, by acknowledging that we are meeting and having this discussion on stolen, unceded land, sovereignty of which was never ceded by the caretakers, and that this liberation struggle is completely interlinked with the Indigenous struggle here, because it is an Indigenous struggle there. For Lockheed Martin, I'd like to (laughs) first, of course, acknowledge that this is a century-long company, a a company with a history about a century long of murder, of destruction of innocence and of course in the involvement of a capitalist military industrial complex and what I mean by that is that for example in World War II Lockheed Martin's P-38 planes which was one of the the most uh, produced planes for the US Air Force was actually involved in over 90% of its recon missions in Europe so at the time almost every single strategic bombing mission was done by Lockheed Martin so there are now millions of dead Europeans who had nothing to do with the war and this is a war crime uh, which Lockheed Martin had profited off. So we're talking about a company which for over a century now has profited off the killing of innocents. And so for us, first of all, that we're completely against any weapon proliferation, full stop. We think universities should have nothing to do with this. And so for us, to have a company which has had such a long history of killing people, of being so involved and of profiting off the deaths of people like us, it is completely insane for us to allow for this company to continue to profit off the research and contributions of academics and students at the University of Melbourne. So we want nothing to do with them. Yeah, absolutely. I think even discussing how broad this is and how the incredible impact that it has had and that it's still felt today. And we know that you know Lockheed Martin is not the University of Melbourne's only support of Israel. Could you speak to some of the other ways that the University of Melbourne has supported the settler colony of Israel? Of course, I think one of the worst ways and one of the most perversive ways is, is how it produces knowledge. So what mm. it tends to do is that instead of just overtly supplying it, for example, through money and, and weapons and so on and so forth, it is through the mind, it is through convincing you that this is a, a even-sided conflict, that there is both sides to this, that there is a concept such as, for example, colonial right to self-defense, mm. which is rubbish, but of course it's the same concept which the Australian colonial government has used for over a century and a half. So these two things are completely interlinked, and they realize that if they criticize Israel to such an extent as it needs to be criticized, they'll be criticizing their own colonial government and their own colonial institutions. So for them, they have to sit on this needle edge where they can't criticize Israel, because if they criticize Israel, they're criticizing Australia. But they also can't provide you the tools. They don't want you to have the tools to be able to criticize Israel. Because then you'll criticize Australia. Because it's only someone who cannot see whatsoever a pattern who will look at Israel and go, hang on, isn't that exactly the same thing here? So what you'll tend to do is that, although it might not, for example, be on Israel, you might have classes on settler colonial governments. And they won't tell you a settler colonial. They'll talk about it like America. They'll talk about Canada. They'll talk about Australia. And they'll keep missing the parenthesis, the settler colonial governments. And so they'll tell you about how, because of how long it's been, that these colonial projects have been so long, that they're legitimate, that now all of a sudden it's all over. But to that I say, since when has a perpetrator, since when has the accused, since when has a criminal been able to absolve themselves? Since when could they say, you know what, the crime is done, it's over, and then the victim goes, hang on, hang on, hang on. No, it's not. You're still, you're still here. 
you haven't left. So long as you haven't left, the colonial project is still ongoing. So one of the worst ways that it supports Israel is through epistemology, it's through the knowledge production, it's through convincing people that it's over and that criticizing them means that you're just a radical, that you're an activist, that you're far left or in some instances far right for even thinking that Israel has a problem, that there is something fundamentally wrong with a settler colonial government. When we say, no, this should be the norm, any normal person should be able to look at those projects, whether they be here, whether they be in North America, whether they be in Israel, and say, they shouldn't exist. There is something fundamentally wrong with these projects. Yeah, 100%. It's that it is a settler colonial project, and the people living in it also uphold it, as well as the academic institutions that you know continue to demonstrate this knowledge in the curriculum, but also in the way they also suppress students for talking. As you've mentioned, definitely be called a radical or an activist just for speaking out. What does, I guess, solidarity at all levels kind of look like on university campuses when we're talking about Palestine? Of course. So, for example, for University uh, Melbourne for Palestine, our group has actually been a combination of a community, really. It's had students, it has staff, it has alumni, it even has non-connected people who just want to get involved, who want to show that solidarity. So for us, solidarity, especially at an academic institution, is the entire academic institution as a community, because this is a small community in and of itself, saying, we want nothing to do with this. We don't want this in our name, because that's what it is. At the end of the day, when those bombs are delivered to Gaza, and when they are dropped on the people, and when people are murdered and slaughtered, there is a long, long line, and this is something that the university is well aware of, and that's why as soon as you tell them that you are involved in genocide, they'll be like, oh, no, no, we're not. We've just got a partnership, or we've just got a working partnership, or we've got a working relationship. It's like, okay, well, let's keep tracing that effect. Let's trace that relationship all the way through. And so we end up with is a university, then you go one step removed, you get Lockheed. One step removed, you've got the governments. One step removed, you've got Israel. One step removed, and now all of a sudden you've got a bomb dropped on Gaza, or you've got the technologies required to be able to target those people. So all of these small networks are then connected. So for us, our job and what solidarity is, is joining together, especially as a grassroots organization, especially as a community-led organization, saying, we're going to stop this at the source. If this is going to continue and there's nothing else we can do, the least we can do is make sure that at least our own house is clean, then we've got nothing to do with it. And of course, it's very difficult to do that when, like I said before, these institutions are inherently settled colonial. So... There is only so much, but the least we can do is that so much, that we can do what we can so that way later on when when we are questioned by history, when we are questioned by our descendants and they say, what did you do? We can at least say we did what we could. It wasn't a, oh, we tried, but, you know, maybe it was we did whatever we could. And so that's for what I would say is the drive for many of us is to at least have, if we have some power, whatever it may be, especially, for example, our staff, tenured staff who have a lot more than us, who's students, doing everything they can, meetings, emails, um, even just disruptions, refusing to uh, be involved in any, uh, what do they call them, <laughs> conferences which yep. legitimate these kind of genocides, is the bare minimum. To, the bare minimum is just to say, look, I'm taking an active stand here. The passive stance was to, genif- was to justify genocide. The active stance is to be against it, is to be an anti-racist. So for us, that's what solidarity is. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful to also acknowledge that there is a working relationship and it starts somewhere. And I think I maybe have a question about what do you do when you feel like you aren't doing enough? You know, maybe you're on campus and you are organizing or trying to disrupt and as you mentioned before, you feel like you do 
what you can with the power that you have. Um, but maybe what would you say to a student that feels like maybe they're not doing enough? I would say, in all honesty, to have a complete and honest reflection upon yourself and what kind of power you do have. A lot of the times what drives this feeling of not doing enough is the idea that we have more power than what we actually do. So for a lot of people, they look at more powerful people who aren't doing enough. They mm -hmm. look at the staff, they look at professors, they look at business, they look at the business council, they look at the higher-ups, and they go, man, if I was in their position, this is what I would do, this is what I would do. And then without realizing there's a big disconnect between the amount of power they have because they're getting paid to have that amount of power, the amount of power you have because you're paying to be there, yep. it's, oh, I can do it. And then you realize, I can't really do all that much. But the most powerful thing you can do which is a power we all have, including the higher-ups, including anyone who even just has the minuscule amount of language, is conversation. Because when we're trying to decolonize, we have to decolonize first our minds, we have to decolonize how we see the world and how we talk about the world, our language. It's the most powerful tool we have. So for a lot of people, you might not be able to, for example, tear down the institution in one day, but if you can tear down the support for it, that's a lot. And so if you can go into your community, because we should all be involved in our community, and that's something that I feel everyone is, uh, it's an obligation on them. If you can't do much on your university campus, at least still be involved in your community, is to educate. Because for a lot of people, these deals, these partnerships, these connections between university, academic institutions, and genocide is not so clear-cut. They might not be able to see it the same way we do. And so for you, your obligation is to show that to them. It's to find a way to explain it to them, find a way to educate them. Because that's what you're there to do. You're, if you're going to an ec educational institution and you aren't taking that knowledge away and then going to educate somebody else, then something's gone wrong. The knowledge shouldn't stop with you. And if the knowledge you've gotten is colonial and if it's harmful, then your job is to decolonize it. It's to find a way to put the decolonial, uh, sorry, to put the decolonial objective first and then it is to educate. It is to make sure that the buck ends there. Yeah, I think what you've stated about making sure that we decolonize our minds, especially when we're living in, you know, such a individualistic society where we feel mm. like me alone, I'm not doing enough, said every single person on campus. <laughs> and then coming together in a collectivist sense and yeah, being part of your community to redistributing that education um, and having the conversations that are often ongoing. And I know that there is a right to political expression for students and staff, but I guess what does this continued silencing mean for people and staff and students alike on the University of Melbourne campuses and people who are trying to express solidarity with Palestine? Because I know there was a recent suppression of grad students who were wearing cafes and they didn't get access to their recordings, even though that's typically available straight after. Yes. Uh, one of the most heinous examples, and I will redact their name out of respect for their privacy, was actually a First Nations graduate. Um, and I've got their details here, so I won't put that on the air. Uh, who had graduated from a master's, was proud, they had their kefir, and upon being presented with their certificate, had brought out a small banner and had written on it, uh, Black Fellows for Palestine. And as soon as they had begun to open it, the camera immediately panned away. It didn't even show them for a moment. And we've got a video of that. It's on our page if you haven't looked at our Instagram. And I'll tell you about that at the very end. And so 
it had panned away until the First Nations person had completely left the stage. And for me, that is the most insane example, the most insane example I can provide of how suppression works. That when you have a First Nations person expressing solidarity with another First Nations struggle in Palestine, that instead of showing it, instead of at least taking a photo, and this person was not getting any photos, they didn't get any photos, any videos, nothing, it was to completely turn away. It was to say, we know that you're there, but we're not looking. And this is how it works. This is how suppression works. We know that you're there, but we don't want to look. And so we're going to look elsewhere. Look at the sides, look at our right, look at our left, look off stage. We will look anywhere but where you are, because where you are is struggle and suffering and a reminder of what we have done to perpetrate that. So for a lot of these organizations, the way that suppression works is to, of course, make you feel that you are radical, and radical in a way in which is not cooperable, like they can't cooperate with you, that you have to meet them in the middle. And rather, what I'm saying is that I am in the middle. <laughs> I'm already there. When I say that I'm against colonialism, when I say that I'm anti-racist, I'm already in the middle. For me, you're far, far, far off. But they seem to think that I've got to come to them and not them come to us. And so every single time you have a meeting, every policy that's laid down is, a, this is where we are. And if you don't want to meet us here, then you're the ones who we won't engage with. And so this is how colonialism works. This is how these institutions work. And the way in which they suppress is to, of course, make you feel that you are insane, that you you don't belong, that your voice is, is not right to be heard, that your politics and your policy is not fit, that you cannot adequately analyze, and you cannot even express solidarity. If you express solidarity, they'll suppress it, they'll ignore it. For example, we had the Herald Sun put out a, an article saying that at first it was four, and then they edited it and said nine, <laughs> as if they had made a big jump to go from four students wearing kafias to nine. We put up a video of about nearly, I think, 30 or 40 students on just one graduation ceremony. And so the question is, if that's just one, and we've got volunteers who I want to thank, who have been there day in, day out, handing out kafias. Of course, I also want to take, uh, thank Free Palestine Melbourne. I want to thank, thank the Sitin Inifada, who has been so kind in providing us these kafias. Uh, it's... For us, it's it's how these things work. It's suppression, but it's also a misrepresentation of reality. That, oh, there's only nine, when in fact we've got maybe hundreds. And again, First Nations persons showing solidarity, not even shown, not even a photo. Yeah, it's such, it's such a disgrace because having First Nations solidarity across the world is important and to suppress that, particularly in the settler colony of Australia as well, so-called Australia. Um and lastly, what can our listeners do to support the University of Melbourne for Palestine and end the partnership with Lockheed Martin? Of course, like I said before, we're a grass-led and community-based organisation, so we are open to any volunteers, anyone with energy, skill, time and resources, or even just information, or even just to go out into your community and talk to people. It's something that we completely value, something that we are in great need for. Um, for those who don't already follow us on social media, we're on Instagram at, uh, at Unimail for Palestine, and we're on Twitter at uh, umelb 4 the number 4, Palestine. You'll find us there. That's where we put our information. We also have a signal group open to volunteers. There's a link in the Instagram link tree bio, which you'll be able to find in Google Form too, and you'll be able to fill that up. Um, so, yes, do message us if you want to get more involved than just being in the community even like I said before, even just being in your community, telling people what's going on, talking to them, educating, that's that's more than enough. You don't have to feel that, especially for those who aren't completely involved or directly involved in the University of Melbourne, that you've got to do everything. Do what you can. Yeah, can 100%. Decolonize your mind, strike the numbers, and follow UniMelb for Palestine. Thank you so much, Ahmed, for coming so in much. today.
This summer, wildlife are feeling the heat of climate change. Wildlife becomes stressed and unwell in hot weather and every summer Wildlife Victoria receives tens of thousands of calls for wildlife assistance. You can make a positive difference to the future of wildlife by donating to Wildlife Victoria. Your donation will help us rescue and care for heat-affected native animals. The future of wildlife is in your hands. Donate to Wildlife Victoria at wildlifevictoria.org.au Wildlife Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Co-Power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Co-Power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Co-Power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. I sat in the interrogation room wanting answers. You see, that's what I did. I grilled authors for the whys and wherefores. Every Thursday, 11.30, it was the same. 3CR, published or not. Who were the characters involved? What were they like? And how did the whole damn plot unfold? So stay tuned as Jan, David and Lisa... Apply the pressure once more to yet another author. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM for our final interview for today. So for the past 68 days, there has been, you know, bar a handful of water, food and medicine trucks coming through the Rafa crossing, a total and complete centrally imposed blockade on pretty much anything going in or coming out of Gaza, including communications. And this has been an intensification of the long-standing Israeli siege of the area amidst over 75 years of colonial occupation. So, It's effectively cut Gaza from the rest of the world, and it's a further example of the lengths that the colonial power will go to to ensure Palestinians can't communicate with each other or the world. Now, to discuss the blockade, the bombing, and the isolation of Gaza and how the incessant violence impacts on the distribution of material support and humanitarian aid, we're joined by Oxfam Australia's Director of Programs, Anthea Spinks. Anthea, thank you very much for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Uh, So... Maybe to start off with, can you tell us a bit about the work of uh, Oxfam in Gaza and, and in the West Bank, if you have a presence there as well? Yes, yeah, certainly. So Oxfam does have a presence in the West Bank um, as well as in Gaza, and we've been present in both locations for many years. Um, we've got um, some amazing and wonderful, fantastic staff that work uh, in Gaza that are in Gaza at the moment, um, and we also work with a number of local partners. Um, but at the moment, the situation for all of them, their families, and indeed all of their communities is just so uh, horrifying. Um, we've all you know, seen the news over the last two months or so, um, and for our staff and all of their you know, friends and family, they're all um, suffering from the current and ongoing conflict. Um, they're all displaced. Um, they're living in, you know, really overcrowded areas, as is, um, you know, most of the people in Gaza. Um, and still, on a daily basis, they're doing what they can because they are humanitarian aid workers um, and they are helping their, their fellow civilian population to the best degree that they can. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, this, this whole thing, um, you know, the, the situation in, in Gaza at the moment, but also, you know, the question of colonialism, um, really, you know, 
begs the question of unpacking what humanitarianism means in this context. And I know that uh, Marta Valdez, the Oxfam humanitarian director, was recently quoted as saying that uh, to forge a permanent ceasefire is the only humanitarian action that matters. So um, I was wondering if you could speak to how Oxfam's work, um, you know, advocates for that kind of change. Certainly. So from the very beginning, Oxfam has been advocating for a permanent and lasting ceasefire. We're very pleased um, over the last day or so that Australia um, has joined that call formally and recently um, the Prime Ministers of Australia, New Zealand uh, and Canada um, signed a statement um, and obviously we've had a recent vote at the UN as well. Um, so we have been very active in calling for a permanent ceasefire because we know that that is the only way that we will be able to scale up the humanitarian aid and operations that are so desperately needed at the moment um, and because it's the only way that will protect the civilian population. So we've um, got to remember that there are um, you know, over 2 million people that live in an area that has a coastal line of about 41 kilometres. Um, so the geographical space in which those um, you know, 2 million people uh, live um, is already a very small and overcrowded space. Um, already prior to the current conflict, obviously there's been an ongoing blockade um, for over 16 years now of the Gaza Strip. Um, and you, you mentioned in your opening statement just, you know, how little aid is getting through. Um, to put that into quantum before October the 7th, over 500 trucks of, of supplies or some form of assistance were going into Gaza on a daily basis. Um, and that was to basically just resupply the stocks um, and, you know, the, the basic necessities for people. So since the, the, um, the conflict has escalated and those crossings have been closed uh, with limited, you know, um, trucks going in, and we know that there was a pause um, in hostilities recently where that scale was able to increase a little bit, it's nowhere near the quantum that's needed. And day by day, the need is actually growing. So um, if the supplies are still dwindling and day by day, the need is growing, you know, that equation doesn't add up. And so that's why we've been so adamantly advocating for a ceasefire and a permanent ceasefire, because as a humanitarian organisation, our focus is on the civilians that have been impacted by this crisis. Um, we have partners on the ground that are able to deliver the assistance as soon as we can get it to them. Um, and our concerns are actually growing for the fact that um, the longer this goes on, the more people that are um, that are killed as a result of the conflict um, will be outweighed by the people that because of the conflict and the lack of water, food and other supplies that they're able to access. Mm, yeah, and uh, we have seen as well, there's now, uh, you know, because of heavy rainfall, flooding in Jabalia um, and other areas, uh, which also raises the question of uh significant because people are trapped under the rubble because people haven't been able to be buried of significant spread of disease and biohazards that kind of thing as well and yeah i i guess um coming back to to some of spike's excellent questions here um you know we've we've heard journalists academics we've heard palestinians and i guess we should be listening to palestinians first and foremost but also others describe gaza as an open-air prison and i'm wondering in the context of an ongoing occupation, um, you know, what the complicities and concerns are for aid organizations kind of working there, um, you know, considering that, you know, part of providing humanitarian aid um, could also be considered as, you know, maintaining a bit of the status quo of that oppressive kind of state. So I was wondering um, if you wanted to, to, to maybe speak to that and, and, and the kind of tensions that come up in doing this work. 
Yeah, OXFAM is a humanitarian aid organisation, as I've said before, and so our focus is on protecting the lives of those civilians, operating in contexts like bees and many others where um, they are very challenging situations. Um, we have to hold true to those principles that actually there are civilians in need. There are people who are caught up in this conflict through no fault of their own um, who need the basic uh, necessities for survival. That includes at the moment fuel, water, um, food, hospital supplies, really simple basic shelter. Um, and if no one is providing that assistance to them, uh, then we're not doing our job as humanitarian aid organisations. Yes, it's a challenging um, and sensitive conflict, uh, but Oxfam has been working there for many, many years. Um, we have local partners who, this is their daily reality. These are their, this is their homes. They can't wake up one day and decide that they're not going to be in this reality. So our job is to really stand by them and support them in delivering the assistance that their communities so desperately need. Mm, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate you. Um, yeah, being generous in your response to, to that question. Now, I know um, we've been talking about this in terms of, of a conflict, um, but of course, we know that there's a huge power differential at, at play and uh, that occupation and siege of Gaza, but also occupation of Palestinian territories um, and, you know, this ongoing uh, apartheid regime as, as identified by uh, Human Rights Watch and other uh, international organizations has been going on for a very long time. And so um, I was wondering as well if you could speak to, um, you know, the human rights-based approach of Oxfam and um, maybe Oxfam's perspectives on um, on this sort of the lack of human rights afforded to Palestinians, especially in Gaza, and, and the, the nature of, you know, the collective punishment that is being uh, inflicted at the moment. Well, Oxfam, you know, as I said, has been working in the region for a very long time. Um, and you asked earlier about the ceasefire. One of the other reasons why we're calling for a ceasefire is because not just to be able to deliver the immediate humanitarian need that's required, but that that is the only way that will enable um, the, the various different parties to get back to a place to be able to talk about long and lasting peace. Um, and that has definitely been something Oxfam has been um, advocating and calling for for many years. We've been calling for an end to, of the blockade um, for the last 16 years, so it's not a space that we're new to. Um, indeed, it's a, it's a space that we've been working in um, and supporting our partners for a very, very long time. And you're right, at the moment, one of the, one of the reasons why it's such a dire situation um, and why the civilian population is in so much need uh, is that the human rights of those people are not being respected. Their, their right to freedom, their right to live with dignity, um, their right um, to exist in a peaceful society, um, they're not being... In, um, sort of um, provided to, to the people of, of Gaza and that's certainly a long-standing position of Oxfam that the blockade and the siege needs to end. Um, what we're most desperately worried about at the moment though is the immediate humanitarian need of you know the two million people that are living in Gaza. Um, 1.9 of those are displaced. Um, as I mentioned earlier before, the coastline, and it is a very, people will know the geography, it's a very narrow, thin coastline um, of just 41 kilometres. Um, and the people that are now most of that area is not inhabitable, so um, reduced the, the land size that people were previously living on to about, you know, a, a fifth um, of what's um, able to be, you know, safely um, inhabited at the moment, and I use that word very loosely because there is actually no safe place in Gaza right now. Um, civilian population is not safe. They are constantly being asked to move, told to go to, to various different safe zones that prove not to be safe. Um, you know, even if a building hasn't been hit, um, it will be at risk from the foundations of other buildings close by that have been hit. So 
the um, long-term aim is obviously to return to a conversation that enables a peaceful solution for the people of Palestine and Israel. Um, but at the moment, the most pressing need is a permanent ceasefire so that aid can be access can be um, access can be given to the humanitarian aid agencies. Um, even if we got access tomorrow, the time it will take us to get the supplies in that will be able to meet the need of the population is weeks. So we can't wait another day for the cessation of hostilities. We have to have that immediately and we need to be able to scale the aid as quickly as we possibly can. Otherwise, you know, as you mentioned, there are, there are people trapped under rubble, um, the fear of disease going into winter where the weather is so unpredictable and can mm. change so quickly in the Gaza Strip. Um, we are, we are very afraid that more people will die, not from the violence of the conflict, but as the result of the conflict. Absolutely. And uh, look, I think uh, we're coming up to the end of time for our show, but I just wanted to thank you, um, Anthea, again, for coming on the program today. Thank you so much for you and your listeners taking an interest in this conflict, you know, two and a half months on. It's really important we keep the world's attention on the people of Gaza. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was Anthea Spinks, Oxfam Australia's Director of Programs. And I think it's interesting to have these kinds of conversations, getting perspectives from um, organizations that are working in the area. And, you know, in Spike's excellent questions, he was asking really, you know, what is the main goal of an aid organization when colonial powers like Israel refuse to respect the human rights of the people it's oppressing? And what role does that situate humanitarian organizations in uh, in relation to the colonial status quo and in relation to the oppressed people of Palestine. So uh, it's interesting to hear about the sort of material supports and how they flow through. And, um, you know, there is no question that there is a significant need for material aid, but also uh, there's no question that there can be no lasting ceasefire um, without uh, decolonization. There can be no justice, uh, sorry, no peace without justice. Um, so, Thank you very much, everyone, again, for listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. We will catch you next week. I'll catch you next year because it's my last show for the year. But everybody else will be in the studio to wrap up next week. Oh, Leela, do you want to say bye? Goodbye, everybody. Yeah, this is my last show of the year as well. And I'll see you next year. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.